In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Superhuman effort isn't worth a damn unless it achieves results. Ernest Shackleton. No, I mean, you're not, you know, you're, you're basically in a boat about the size, same size as a queen size double bed in terms of the living space for six men. So you're all seated. There's no lying down and you're sitting on a combination of rocks and camera batteries because we had camera batteries to film what we were doing. It was a tiny seasickness inducing, unpleasant, cold, wet space, basically. Um, and sometimes relief could be found actually on the helm of the boat, whereas one person at a time up on deck because the atmosphere below deck was so uh, bad. Not between us, but, you know, air quality, wet, um, you know, unpleasant, toilet in a bucket held by the other guys three feet away from everybody and just moving round one. When the next guy came off the helm, everybody shuffled round one and it was your turn. If you were at the end of the line, it was you back up again. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Mirapod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirt bags and hiker trash. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute. Help us out. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right. I am very excited to talk to this week's guest because I think we share a common fascination with the greatest story of survival out there. This week's guest is an explorer, a conservationist, and a filmmaker. And we're going to be talking all about Ernest Shackleton today. Welcome to the John Freaking Muir Pod, Tim Jarvis. How's it going, Tim? Thank you, Doc. Yeah, great to be here. And when you say here, where where exactly is here for you? Because I know where I am, but where are you calling in from today? 
Well, I know where you are, and I'm I'm in uh, South Australia, so I'm sort of middle of Australia at the bottom. Okay, like. middle middle at the bottom. You know, a yeah, few weeks ago, my I, life. I had a chance to talk to uh, an an Appalachian Trail hiker who had finished the trail and she is now currently working at McMurdo station down in Antarctica. So we we've had some guests from, from down South recently. Thank you for joining. Yeah, it's very cool. I, I've just spent last week in uh, New Zealand in Christchurch, which is of course the air link down to McMurdo and to Scott base, which is the New Zealand one right next door. And they have a, an annual rugby match between McMurdo and, and Scott. But I think the Kiwis would probably win that one. But interestingly, you know, all of those bases stay on Christchurch time because you go south from McMurdo, you go to South Pole, and of course all the lines of of longitude converge to a single point. There's no – you can pick whatever time zone you want. That's right. And I'm glad you explained that because as I was trying to set up the interview with, with my guest who was down at McMurdo – I had no idea what the what the time difference was, and she she told me it was twenty one hours difference, and I was trying to figure out how that could possibly be. But now now it makes sense the way that you have explained that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, uh, the U.S. gets most of its air air link traffic goes through Christchurch, so you know why change the time zone when all the points converge to a single point at South Pole, which is the final destination for a lot of that traffic. May as well stick on that time zone. Um, I went there many years ago going from Chile, and I kept my watch on Chilean time, and 47 days later arrived at the South Pole, and I was 17 hours adrift from the time zone they were on, but of course we were on exactly the same time. So so 17 hours difference. You were eating, you were eating breakfast while they were having like a late afternoon snack from the day before. Yeah, that's right. I arrived. They probably smelt me coming, quite frankly, because I've been out there for 47 days at that stage. Um, but I met the guy who was kind of in inverted commas working on the night shift. and He was adjusting some equipment and I came up behind him and planted my hand on his shoulder and scared the living daylights out of him. And he turned around and said, you know, you know who, who the hell are you sort of thing? And I said, oh, I'm just passing through. Don't worry. And uh, but yeah, he was the only guy awake on the night shift. And as far as I was concerned, it was mid-morning on my watch. Yeah. Now, Antarctica and McMurdo Station. I mean, as I was talking to to uh, Anne-Marie down there, talked to her about, you know, that's the perfect setting for a horror novel or a horror movie. She had volunteered to stay on for the winter season with a skeleton crew where it's, you know, it's it's dark all the time and there's only like 100, 150 people there. Uh, during the winter months, and uh, that's, that's just ripe for all kinds of scary things. Just, just channel the thing, and um, and and you're there. You know all those dark corridors, and it plays to our our you know our worst nightmares. Twenty four hour darkness and people rattling around in a big old base in a place which is just so remote. You know. Antarctica is amazing. One and a half times the size of the lower 48. One and a quarter mile thick average ice. Bound to be all sorts of things hidden under the ice. Not least of all a mountain range size of the European Alps. Not big enough to poke through. You know, just incredible. That's wild. That's wild. And I, I know we're going to talk about this, but let's. Let, we're already in the talking about the darkness down there for six months out of the year. What kind of impact did that have on Shackleton and his men? I mean, you're you're trapped down there, and it's dark all the time. 
Yeah, well, I mean, don't forget by this stage they had, um, you know, they'd sailed down in their ship Endurance during what was left of the summer and then, of course, got stuck in pack ice and then the ice closed in around the hull of the ship, crushed it. And in the end, the only thing holding the Endurance up was the ice packed tightly around the hull. But they knew the hull had been breached and they knew that even when the ice moved apart, they weren't going to sail home in that ship. So the mood was already pretty, you know, pretty dark. And then you've got you've got that icy embrace of Antarctica that, you know, the darkness just closing in around you. And you're just operating in tiny little pools of light. Everything beyond 10 yards away from the ship is just this dark, bleak, inhospitable environment. Must have been very intimidating for those, those men. Can't even imagine. We're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Tim, I know you spend a lot of time on the water. There is a peculiar American tradition of assigning trail names to long distance hikers in the U.S. Depending upon you know where they're from, uh, something that happens on the trail, some peculiarity of their personality, people pick up trail names. Can the same thing be be said of uh, of sailors? Do you have a nickname out there or a a, a, a sailing name that you picked up? Well, you know, it's interesting you say I'm a good sailor. I'm actually not a very good sailor, really. I'm really a climber, but I was forced to become a half decent sailor for the um, for, for the for the Shackleton expedition. And you know, we can talk more about that. But it's pretty intimidating being a non-sailor who's trained hard in a storm in the Southern Ocean in a keelless rowboat. Uh, the boat was named after Alexandra Shackleton, his granddaughter. So maybe I should be called the Alexandra or something like that. But I don't want to offend her. <laughs> all right hey, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast before tim i actually haven't but uh look i you know i've subsequently listened to it but i've never listened to it before before you know before now but it's great oh thank you thank you and i was i was not fishing for compliments just want to make sure that you are aware of a segment that we have towards the end of every episode called the pro tip inside of the week and that's where i will turn to you and ask you tim to share some some uh, adventure wisdom with our listeners to make their next adventure even better. So don't be surprised when we get there. Okay, gotcha. Okay. The Must Bring Gear Review. Hey, Tim, another feature we've been doing this season is the Must Bring Gear Review, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company, Six Moon Designs. Here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-month adventure, say down at the South Pole somewhere, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So, Tim, what do you have to have with you out there? That's a really good question. Um, uh, look, South Pole is a brutal place. You need you need a good stove. I, I always take um, an MSR stove, I guess, you know, just to... You're walking over one and a quarter mile thickness of ice, but you've got to be able to melt it to drink it or rehydrate your food. So I probably would say a stove. But frankly, if you don't have at least half a dozen things like good clothing, decent tent, maybe a compass, then you're in a world of pain down there. So, uh, yeah, probably the stove, the reliability of the stove will be the number one thing, source of warmth and nutrition yeah a lot of our listeners are you know through hikers backpackers day hikers you know they, they spend a lot of time on usually a well-marked uh, trail 
with, you know, the conditions maybe not not that severe. But if you're if we're talking Antarctica, I mean that is a that is a dangerous environment to be in. Uh, if something goes yeah, wrong, for sure. Look, I mean, you lose yeah. something. I mean, you you're like you said, you're in a world of hurt. Look, you really are. I mean, um, on early trips, I've been there thirteen times, and I mean, I, I remember early trips, I would just sort of you know casually get the tent out and start pegging it out, and then you feel your hands go completely numb and then you feel your forearms go numb and then before you know it, you've got frostbite so you've got to get moving and the wind is so incessant you know driest highest windiest coldest continent that you need a, a kind of a lanyard attached to your tent attached to your sled so the thing doesn't just blow away and all of the moisture from all your exhaled breath from the night before of course is just gathered in the tent so you've got all that moisture ready as soon as your body heat goes back into the equation that's ready to start dripping in on you and wet your sleeping bag and so on and so on and then it gets worse and worse so you've got to get rid of all of that so you you you, you basically get rid of all the crystals of moisture from the breath from the previous night's breathing out of your tent as quickly as you can so that when you get back back in it doesn't sort of melt on you and 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 that, of course, reduces how much your sleeping bag insulates you and so on and so on and so on. So everything you've got to think of. 13 trips to Antarctica. That is impressive. Now, what? What? how, how long was your stay average for each of those trips? Well, I mean, the longest one was four months. Um, that was a bid to cross Antarctica one side to the other on foot pulling a 510-pound sled. Um, I did three months retracing the journey of somebody called Douglas Mawson, who was a heroic era explorer. He was a contemporary of Shackleton. <clears throat> He'd done a, an expedition where both his colleagues died. One fell in a crevasse, the second one died in his arms, and then he was the sole survivor because that guy also died, unfortunately. And many had accused him of maybe having needed to cannibalize the second man to make it. So I basically did it the same way that he described it as having happened, which is eating the same calories is what he did without the need to eat in my case this increasingly nervous russian guy with whom i i traveled and then um yeah i could see uh, where that, went that back. could go a little bit wrong you, you have you have this, go wrong. this russian guy with you and you, you're going to reenact yeah. exactly and these rumors are swirling out there he had to be a little bit nervous he slept with a sort of knife and uh kind of looked over at me and uh look i lost uh 70 pounds uh, in weight on that trip, but I fell over the finish line and he's still alive and I can give you his email. He's still there, but you know, we made it and I think we proved Mawson's innocence. And then, and then I went back to Shackleton, which is two months. So I guess to answer your question, probably a couple of months of time. On wow. and, and Antarctica is, is a desert contrary to popular belief, right? I mean, it's, it's a dry environment. It really is. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, it's amazing. It's, as I said, it's one and a half times the size of the lower 48, which people don't realize. And it's covered in this one and a quarter mile thickness of ice, but it's also very dry. And I live in Adelaide, which is actually the driest city in the driest inhabited uh, continent in the world here in Australia. It doesn't rain very much, but we had about 45 days of no rain a few summers ago and everyone got the record books out. Antarctica, some places you've had no, no rainfall or snowfall for over 100,000 years. So it is dry. You know, that ice cap, a lot of the time, 
the blizzards those old explorers used to talk about was the same old stuff just being blown around by the wind, not fresh snowfall. Um, why we want to protect it, you know? But yeah, it's um, it's amazing. It's extreme, not designed for us to survive in. That's what makes it fun, right? That's right. Pushing the envelope. Now you said you 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 made an attempt to cross Antarctica, pulling this five hundred plus pound sled behind you. How how did that end? Well, it ended with a fuel leak about seventy days in, um, which was which was difficult because I was just at the point where Scott and his men died on their famous bid to reach South Pole themselves. They made it, but they didn't make it back out, and I was at the same point where they had kind of the first guy died and was going to run out of fuel completely. So I made the tough decision to actually turn around and go back to the South Pole. So the same guy I'd scared on the way through, couldn't believe it when he saw me reappear a few weeks later coming from coming from the opposite direction. And I I, I pulled his leg and said, I just forgot, I forgot my uh, gloves. I just needed to. But yeah, look, it was a really tough one. But at the time, it was the longest longest sledge journey that anyone had done truly unsupported um but it did mean i get to, got to spend christmas at south pole which is not what i'd intended not too many people can say that no look it was amazing because the nsf um the u.s based administration runs south pole and they officially say we can't talk to you we can't help you we can't do anything and I was there and I arrived and they said, well, you have to pitch your tent out there. And I was about a mile from the base, half a mile maybe. And uh, one night I heard the sound of footsteps coming towards me unmistakably. And I peered out through the fly of the tent and it was Father Christmas coming over. He left me a six pack of beers and walked back to the base. Uh, it was just one of those moments. It's absolutely fantastic. So I drank a very cold beer at South Pole, courtesy of Father Christmas, who was in the wrong place, but greatly appreciated. Best Santa ever. Now, you had to drink that beer quick before it froze, I bet. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you. that's the thing. that I mean, when people go on a, a backcountry hike in, in the States, of course, it can get cold, but you need a thermos just to keep the water liquid, not to keep the contents hot. And, um, you know... So in the morning when you melt your snow, you're melting snow for a couple of hours to give yourself enough drinking water for the whole day. That goes in your thermos and you, like I say, it's just to keep it liquid. And what kind of temperatures were you dealing with down there? Well, when you get to below, when you get to about minus 28 Fahrenheit and Celsius are exactly the same number. Um my temperature, my my thermometer used to go down to minus 35 Celsius. So it was a bit colder than minus 30 Fahrenheit. And routinely, it was just off the bottom of that uh, thermometer. So that's summer. Uh, South Pole can get to minus 50 in the summer. Uh, up high, because you're, you're 10,000 feet up. Most of which, of course, is ice. South Pole ice is about 10,000 feet thick. And, you know, it's it's cold due to the altitude and the uh, and where you are. So winter can get colder again, you know. So summer would be maybe minus 30, 35. Uh, winter can be minus 50, minus 60. In the winter, you're longing for those warm summer days at minus 30. That's right. Those balmy days when you can get the, get the old uh, Bartik shirt out and the shorts and 
Yeah. That's nice. right. You're, you're one tough dude. It's the Hawking Pole. All right. Hey, to help us uh, keep talking about gear a little bit down in down in at the South Pole in Antarctica, we have the hiking pole. And the hiking pole is spelled P-O-L-L, like a survey, not like the thing you carry in your hand out there. I like to point that out to my guests because I think I'm clever for having come up with that. And and their reaction is pretty clever. much is, is pretty much the same as, as I can see on your face right now. So that's okay. It, this is a seven- overwhelmed with your brilliance. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Hey, this is a seven-question survey that's going to help me give you a score on the sanity scale, with right. one being completely insane and 100 being completely sane. Now, I have to tell you that right off the bat, Tim, that anybody who's done 13 trips to Antarctica, there's an automatic 30-point deduction. So the highest score okay. you can get is is 70. I think I think that's actually pretty reasonable. That's good. Yeah. So so high is good or bad? High is good. Well, it depends. Okay. It depends on what you think is okay. good. But high is the higher the score, the saner you are. I'm at minus thirty again. Story of my life. I'm always at minus thirty. It seems. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Hey, that worked out nicely. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, so I'm 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 going to adjust some of these questions a little bit as best I can to to uh, account for the Antarctica experience. So, when you're out there, when you're pulling a 500 pound sledge, uh, is a sled is the First question is, do you have trekking poles out there? Yes. Yeah, cheating. It's cheating using poles. No, no, look, you do have them. Yeah, yeah. You need something to give you a bit of because you have skins on the skis you wear and you wear the skis just to stop yourself falling in the crevasses and sinking in the snow, but you've got to have the poles. So many ways to die out there. Yeah, there are lots of options. I mean, it's you know, you're always thinking which shall I which which do I pick today you know so crevasses are a real problem at certain bits in that journey you know where the ice is changing direction around a mountain or when you step from the ice shelves which are these incredible you know one of them the Ross ice shelves about the same size as France so it's huge I don't know which US state that would equate to but it's big and that rises and falls every day with the tide so when you kind of step on and off that to get either onto the land, if you're heading on land or off the land, onto it, going the other way, you've got this thing called the hinge zone, which is just crevasse central for maybe uh, 50 miles and lots of opportunities to um, get in trouble. Then there's no. my cooking. You know. <laughs> now, if you run into a crevasse, if, if one opens up in front of you or you come across one, what do you do? Do you have to backtrack and find a way around it? Or do you do you have means yeah. to, to cross it? There's no good means, really. I mean, the idea is you've got to try and cross them at a right angle. Um, so if you're going up a um, a big glacier, you're trying to, you know, follow the, 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 the main route of the glacier because the crevasse is probably going to be kind of across you uh, at a right angle. Um Worst thing you can do is walk along the line of one where it gives you multiple opportunities to fall in, obviously. But yeah, with that thickness of ice, they can be, you know, obviously pretty much bottomless as far as fall is concerned. That's cool. what claimed the first of Mawson's colleagues all those years ago. You know, he fell in and he went down the hole with the dog team, pulling the sled that was with him. And when the other two guys got to the edge of the hole, they just looked down and they, all they could see was one dog on a on a sort of ledge about 80 feet down and the rest was just darkness and yeah wow now i know everest 
Everest has a lot of uh, waypoints on it marked by by dead bodies of of climbers yeah. that have uh, succumbed to the elements up there. Is Antarctica similar in that you have uh, locations where this is where so-and-so died and is still there, or have they, have they recovered a number of the bodies? No, they haven't recovered them. We went to Scott and his men, famous, because, of course, the story was that Scott and Amundsen were racing to be the first to the pole, and it was an in-and-out journey, so from the edge in to the pole in the middle and kind of back out. Amundsen famously made it with no problem. Um, Scott and everybody died. Um, no, they've never recovered those bodies. I mean, not least of all because of the vastness of the placement. It's just so big. Um, when Scott, uh, Bowers and Wilson, who were the three that died last together, if you like, um, they uh, built, the guys who came in to look for them built a can of, of, of snow and ice around the tent, collapsed the tent in on the bodies, took the diaries. That's how we know what happened. And then by the following year, that had been completely obliterated by the storms that go through there. So uh, their bodies are still there. But actually, interestingly, the bodies are moving as the Ross Ice Shelf, which is what they died on, is moving towards the coast. So, you know, one day Scott will no longer be Scott of the Antarctic. He will literally, he and his companions' bodies will be, be in the sea. So we kind of know the pace at which they're moving, moving north. Yeah, and then Mawson's colleagues, you know, they're they're long gone. Um, okay. Yeah. So back, you don't come across them. Yeah, back like back you do to the with the uh, yeah green boots or whatever the Korean right. guy was who died on Everest. You don't you don't don't kind of come across those people. Right. Understood. Probably a good thing. All right. When you're out there on the ice, what's on your feet? I have to imagine you have some pretty heavy boots on your feet. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, you know, the boots, they just, they just vary from one trip to the next. I mean, it depends how much climbing you're going to do, uh, with, with Shackleton's trip. Of course I did it the same way as he did. So I just wore the old stuff. We use cotton smocks and woolens and just a leather military boot, hobnail boot from the 1920s. And uh, the problem with those is as soon as you take your foot out of them, any sweat that have gone into them when you're working hard during the day just freezes solid. So you actually have to put them inside the sleeping bag with you just to try and keep the leather kind of more supple. Otherwise, it's like wood. And um, that's not good. Yeah. No. So everything goes in the sleeping bag, which of course is reindeer skin. So, how did your feet hold up in Shackleton era boots? Do you still have all your toes? I still got all my toes. I've lost sensation in a few toes, but I do still have them. I did. I have had some pretty bad frostbite over the years, but um, I've managed to to keep them. But I have lost sensation. Lost sensation in them, and then that frostbite comes back more quickly the next time round. So on Shackleton, yeah, it was not good. I mean. Uh, when we got to South Georgia, the island he was trying to reach, you know, he had to cross three glaciers with his colleagues to try and reach the whaling station on the far side. For us, there were there were two, and the third one, due to the effects of, you know, climate change, essentially is a lake. So you've got to wade across that. And when your feet are already gone, wading through a pretty much, might be two degrees Celsius, so hovering, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, 30, 35 Fahrenheit, very, you know, very, very low. Temperature water, your feet are in in very poor shape. 
Now, Tim, I have to I have to be honest with you here. Usually when I ask these questions on the hiking pole, I have an opinion about what what type of gear people should be using or not using. I have no idea on this. So I'm not I'm not even sure how I'm gonna score you on this, but we'll keep going. Question number three on the hiking pole. What do you use for for your shelter system up there? What what does your tent look like? What does it consist of? Yeah, so look, I should give a plug to Bibler. I think you'd call them Bibler in the US. Um, single skin Gore-Tex tent is what I would what I would choose to use. In actual fact, the Gore-Tex, even though it's designed to be breathable, struggles with the just that moisture that you're breathing out and all your sweat. And if you cook with the stove inside, which I try not to do, but I try to cook just outside this, the, the, the tent. Otherwise, all that moisture just coats the inside of the tent and then it freezes instantly with, when it comes into contact with the, with the outside temperature, which is in the minus 30s. So, and then you don't have a breathable tent anymore. But I really like the single skin uh, Gore-Tex tents. So I think, you know, there's less hassle. They're strong, and I uh, modified a waterproof zipped floor on the bottom so that if you get caught in a blizzard, you can actually go to the toilet underneath the tent without going outside because you go outside in zero visibility. You can get lost. And that's, I, that, you know, that's my that's my worst nightmare right there, Tim. It's it's already bad enough being out on a on a uh, a mountain pass at ten thousand feet, and it's the middle of the night. And oh man, I got to go to the bathroom. I've got my my fifty five year old bladder telling me, "Hey, you got to get up and go to the bathroom." Imagine that now in Antarctica in the in the middle of winter at fifty below. I mean that that is not a fun thought. No, it's interesting. I think I, I had to do the, uh, the health and safety training for the, the Australian Antarctic Division many years ago, back in two thousand seven, when I went down on one of their ships. It was really interesting because the last person to die for them uh, was a guy on a geological field party. And he'd gone from his tent, which you share with the tent buddy, back to this tracked vehicle where they all had their food. And the guys in the mess, you know, vehicle thought that he was with his tent buddy. The tent buddy thought that he got to the mess tent. And in fact, he got disoriented and died 20 yards away from both in a blizzard. And they found him curled up. 24 hours later, just, you know, 20 yards away, but he did, didn't find it to either place. So, so yeah, it's things like that, that, that get you. Okay. Question number Very four. positive conversation. This That's right. Running. We are really, we're really soaring in this conversation. Um, yeah. Question number four. Uh, I'm sure we're encouraging all sorts of people to go out there. Yeah. People are crossing it off their list right now. I'm not, I'm not going there. Um, question number four, what does your sleep system look like out there? So again, look on, on the, on the two expeditions I've done the old way, it's a reindeer skin sleeping bag, which is interesting because you've got to get the reindeer with the right winter coat to be thick enough to survive. And, and then it gets wet and it's, it's really a, a you know, it's a, basically is a major problem, but in the modern expeditions, I use a down sleeping bag. I still favor down. The difficulty is in Antarctica, you've got to keep your, your, your moisture from your body, forget your breathing, but just the moisture that comes out of your pores as you sleep, you've got to stop that getting into the fabric of your sleeping bag. Because if it does, by a month in, you're just going to have a loose piece of fabric with a bunch of feathers like golf ball-sized lumps in the bottom of it and no insulation. So you actually sleep inside a vapor barrier, which is like a big plastic bag, kind of like a body bag. You sleep in that inside your sleeping bag. So the moisture from your body doesn't get into your sleeping bag and and clump the feathers. 
Well, if, so much the, Russian, if, if the Russian guy was worried about you um, <laughs> having him for dinner, I would be just as freaked out climbing into a body bag every night. I mean, that, that, that's not yeah. a good omen either. Oh, look, it's not good. And you wake up in the morning, of course, you're, you're damp. And then you sit up in the tent in the minus 30. And of course, uh, you feel the, uh, you know, the fabric of your clothing starting to kind of crystallize because of the moisture in your, in your kind of thermal layers. Okay. Yeah. Question, pleased question. I live in Adelaide. <laughs> question number five. I come five. here to thaw, thaw out. Question number five. I already know the answer, but I, I just want to ask the question because it's so silly in the context here. Uh, when it comes to food, are you a stove guy, cold soak, or stoveless? You go cold soak down in Antarctica, uh, you, you're gnawing on a piece of ice, basically. Yeah, you know, everything has to be designed for really extreme temperatures. Yeah. So we had, to, we had a chocolate company who sponsored us with the chocolate, and they said, you know, we'll make it for you. What do, what do you need? You know, sugar content and that kind of stuff. And I said, look, there's all that to take into account. You've got to make it thin. You make it normal. You know, there's no biting on Mars bars and things like that. You break your teeth because it just it's just too hard. So it's got to be thin. Okay. And question number uh, six. Yeah. There are no trees down in Antarctica, correct? So this question right. also does not make any sense. Is life better above or below the tree line, Tim? Oh, look, I love nature. And I actually have a reforestation project here in Australia. So, look, I love I love life in the, in the woods. I really okay. do. Yeah. All right. Love it. And question number seven, what's more important out there, pack weight or luxury items? Oh, pack weight for me. I mean, you, you, you know, you cut the toothbrush in half, you pull labels out of your jackets, anything that is a tiny weight when you multiply it by 93 days, which is what you need for a crossing of Antarctica, then 93 lots of a few grams is, is a lot. So no reading material, no hip flask of whiskey, nothing. Unfortunately, oh, wow. you just lost lots of points right there. No, no whiskey on the trail. Got it. All right. Hey, let me do uh, some quick math here. Got to put your answers through the John Freaking Mirpod algorithm. Got to carry the two and divide by root three. Going to multiply that by pi. And we're going to adjust for the moisture factor inside your body bag uh, during the winter in Antarctica. And I come up with a surprisingly high score of 55. I'm not sure. See, my, my whole scoring is, is, is off kilter here because I don't know how to score these yeah. answers. Uh, with your particular environment. So 55, that sounds a little bit high to me. We'll go with it. Yeah, a cynic would suggest you just made that up. But I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think actually 55 is not bad. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably happy with that. I was, but then again, you know, high is, you know, high is fun too. I was thinking I might, I might, I might scrape higher than 55, but that's okay. It, you know, I asked your family members what they would score you. They think they they give you like fifty five or a little bit higher, a little bit lower. Ah, uh, look, I think my wife would probably put me around eighty. I would think there's oh, the she, odd she bit thinks of you're, she thinks you're really sane then. Well, so 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 high is 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 insane, is it? No, no, no. High high. If you get a score of a hundred, you're completely sane. You're the most reasonable person. Oh, I see. Right. No, no, yeah. she'd put me probably twenty. She'd probably put me around twenty. I'd say. Yeah. Well, she obviously knows you better than than we do at this point. So, well, so she says. Anyway, yeah, no, that's right. No, look, I think um, 
I think she knows that part of me is always out there somewhere. We've all got it in us, right? We, we all feel that, you know, it's like meeting an old friend again. When you go back to these remote places, you find yourself in the company of a different kind of version of you. I think we all sort of identify with that at some level without getting too heavy. Yeah, there there is a pull. It, it calls to us. And if you're married to somebody who understands that and accepts you for that, uh, you're you're in the right place. Yeah, there was a, there was a poem. I'm, uh, you know, I just can't remember, but it says it's something about the lone path. I think it is. It says, you know, the the the, the well trodden path lies warm in the sun, and the and and the less trodden path lies cold and warm, but the less trodden path still lures you on. Something like that. And it's true. You are a poet. All right. Hey, before we get too far down the trail, let's let's back up a little bit, Tim. Let's talk about uh, your background, where you grew up, and how did you get caught up in this whole Shackleton uh, reenactment? Is it is it safe to call it reenactment? It, it, it doesn't feel right. It's a it's a recreation of the trip. Yeah, it's a recreation of the trip. That's right. I mean, so basically, we rebuilt the James Caird boat, which people would be familiar with. It's a twenty three foot long keelless rowboat, essentially with a with a deck made out of planks from the other two boats. Uh, we learned to traditionally navigate. We ate the same food, pemmican, which they used to eat on those old expeditions, basically congealed lard. Um, we had an old kerosene primer stove that you put methylated spirits in, you heat it all up, and then you get the kerosene going. And, you know, cotton smocks, woolens, leather boots, no guy lines, no EPIRBs, no neoprene, no cheating, no modern stuff. Got it. And we just did the journey he did um and saw what would happen so in that respect it's not a kind of reenactment it's just leave from elephant island where shackleton left 20 or 22 of his men after the loss of their ship and then just see if you can make it to okay so South you Georgia didn't, and then you climb didn't, the mountains you didn't depart from where the endurance uh, approximately where it was it was stuck in the ice you left from elephant island to to uh south georgia that's right yeah so endurance gets trapped in the ice and then 10 months it, it, it survived albeit with a hull breach by the ice and then when it finally goes down it had drifted actually several hundred miles yeah. but they then lived in on, on the ice for another five months and they drifted again and then so, so much so that by the end they were within four or five days open water of someone called elephant island right which is what they managed to just get to and that's where shackleton left most of his men and off they went in this crazy 800 nautical mile open it, boat journey. It is a bonkers <laughs> story. It is totally crazy. And we're going to get to the details of that in just a second. But what was your background? Where did you grow up? So look, I, I, look I'm from UK originally, but I, I grew up in actually in Malaysia as a kid. Um, there's a product called Tiger Balm, which is a sort of ointment that you put on like deep heat to uh, a cure-all for sort of, you know, aches and pains. And uh, my father used to work for a company that used to sell that in Asia, basically. Um, a lot of other things, too, but that was the original reason. So I grew up there from the age of seven. Um, and, in fact, I pretty much hardly saw snow until um, I was 19. Um, and then, you know, got into climbing. And I'd always been into adventure. But... It was probably in my mid to late 20s that someone suggested I start considering the Arctic. So I 
I went up there and I was hooked. Then I moved to Australia in my late 20s and then the Antarctic beckoned. But I'd known about Shackleton since I was in my teens. But um, I moved to Adelaide as a scientist and uh, Adelaide is where Mawson, Douglas Mawson, Shackleton's contemporary is from. And he'd done the trip that I mentioned where both his colleagues died, but he'd also done another one um, with Shackleton. And so one thing led to another. There were these forces at work, and uh, I found I got drawn in. Just pulling you under. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, let's take a quick break. Let's hear from the advertisers. When we come back, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of Shackleton's journey and then also your recreation of that uh, part of the voyage from Elephant Island back to South Georgia. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water. Using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Through hiker owned, Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your pod podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started.
And welcome back. We're talking with Tim Jarvis about all things Antarctic, all things Shackleton. And we really have to discuss the the nitty gritty of what happened with Shackleton and uh, his time aboard the Endurance. Um, we I've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast before in other episodes that for some reason it, it came up. Um, I was a, a high school principal and I, I actually handed out the book Endurance to my four assistant principals. And we used that as we read through it together and we talked about it and the decisions and leadership qualities and, and how that uh, might impact our decisions. Uh, just a fascinating read. The, the, the biggest thing that blows my mind is that what I'm about to tell you at the end of all of this, nobody died. And that is just remarkable. I mean, we've already had a little bit of conversation about how inhospitable an environment that is and how many things can go wrong very quickly. And uh, with, with conditions like that, I am just totally shocked that nobody died on this trip that I'm about to, to detail. And so, Tim, I, I encourage you to jump in and correct me uh, anywhere I'm, I'm a little bit off base here. But basically, it's about the 28 man crew of the ship Endurance that uh, they were trying to reach the South Pole. They became trapped in the ice. They had left from South Georgia, Georgia Island uh, during the late summer. It was late summer? That, well, they left They left the UK in August. Um, so that would have been winter, yes. There was summer by the time they got to to South Georgia. Okay, so they got they got stranded in the pack ice. Uh, the crew drifted on the ice for over just over a year. They were able to launch their boats, which they had been dragging behind them uh, from where the endurance had been been trapped in the ice. They've been dragging these these um, not rescue boats, but uh, what, what do you call those? The uh, the small like a surf boat, yeah, surf boat, yeah. twenty three foot long, right. kind of keelless rowboat. And so they launched their boats and they somehow managed to land safely on Elephant Island. Now, how they got to Elephant Island, if they're off by a degree or two, I mean, they missed that island by by a wide shot. They're able to hit this, this speck of an island out there. Um, and they, they realized that on Elephant Island, there's, there's not enough to eat. They can't stay there indefinitely. And so Shackleton decides to, I think, take four or five crew members with him, leave the rest on Elephant Island. And he decides not to take necessarily maybe the best uh, best fit. Um, there's actually one who was a, a considerable problem with his attitude and causing problems. And he, he, he knows that if he leaves that person on Elephant Island, that it's just going to be havoc. And who knows what they're going to come back to when they try and rescue them. So he actually takes that guy with them. And they then sail uh, 650 nautical miles away to try to get, get back to South Georgia Island. Now, they get to South Georgia Island, but the problem is they landed on the wrong side of South Georgia Island. And so they have to cross the island, uh, like you said, across three glaciers. And when they finally arrive back at, uh, what was the name of the... Uh, Stromness. Yes, Stromness. But by the time they, they get back there... The, the people at that at that port can't believe what they're seeing. These people are these guys are emaciated, uh, filthy, unkempt, uh, just look like a, a disaster. But then they they realize who it is and they they work to set up a rescue strategy. 
to go back to uh, Elephant Island to rescue the remaining sailors there. And they are unsuccessful on their first three attempts, right? And it's on the fourth attempt that they finally save the rest of the crew. And did I mention this? Nobody died. I mean, how is that even possible? It's just an incredible story. I agree. I mean, uh, I was in New Zealand last week and uh, Sir Edmund Hillary had famously called this the greatest survival journey of all time. The man who first summited Everest. So, I mean, if he reckons it's up there, then I'm inclined to um, take his word on it. You're not going to disagree with him. No way. No, that's right. And I mean, um, actually, the boat journey was almost 800 nautical miles because, of course, they're not going in a straight line. They're going on a kind of arc to get to the island. And yeah, you know, he took five with him, as you said. And I think he realized that um, three of them were the best. And he took two of the biggest troublemakers, actually. Vincent, who was a guy who had been um, basically pilfering stuff from people, stealing stuff. And uh, McNeish, who was the ship's carpenter, who helped modify the little boat they took. They put a, basically a deck, taking planks off the other two to try and stop waves sinking them because um, he's sitting very low in the water with a ton of rocks in the bottom of the boat to stop it capsizing. And so he took those two with him and they made this incredible, incredible journey across the Southern Ocean in, in some of the roughest sea you, you're ever going ever to encounter. And as you say, they arrived on the wrong side of South Georgia. They couldn't sail round because, of course, the same winds and currents that have sort of pushed them up there are then pushing you straight onto the onto the onto South Georgia. And South Georgia is basically mountains that come straight out of the ocean. The cliffs are not really cliffs; they're really mountains that keep going. And the highest one looks, you know, it's ten thousand feet high, and it's very, very angular, dramatic technical mountaineering if you want to climb that thing um yeah just a remarkable story that's right i mean they didn't they didn't they didn't land on this you know nice balmy beach and just had to walk an extra few miles to get to get to town they 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 had to scale the the pretty pretty vertical terrain uh yeah yeah you know the interesting thousand feet i mean that's that's uh, quite a climb yeah, the interesting thing is they didn't have to go up that one, but the you know the climbing up was not really the problem. It was the climbing down that was the problem. So they they, I, I think the way I would best describe the climb across South Georgia is you 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 ascend gradually, albeit through crevassed terrain that is dangerous. Then you're in the high, you're at a high point, and you've got to descend fifteen hundred feet down very very steep terrain and as any mountaineer will tell you climbing down is far more difficult than climbing up and that was that was the first thing and then they're in the glaciers with lots of crevassing again and then they're gradually climbing again before once again there's about a thousand foot down climb and again that's scary stuff when you've only got nails in the soles of your boots and Shackleton talked of digging the heels in because they were the only places in his boots that still had nails taken out of their packing cases still left you know and he talked about looking through his feet as he looked down at the abyss and seeing little rocks and bits of ice spinning off into this void. And uh, you, you just hope that he's been embellishing things until you get there and you realize that's exactly what it's like. So, Holy smoke. So, Tim, you hear about this story. You you said you, you were familiar with the story when you were a teenager, and it kind of simmers in your mind for a decade or so or, or longer, and you, you come to the decision – Hey, this would be 
a good idea to recreate the conditions uh, that that Shackleton had to work with and set off from Elephant Island and, and try and get to South Georgia. Is that right? I didn't say good idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I think I felt it would be the right thing to do. We're coming up to the hundredth anniversary of 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 uh, at the time of of his trip, and um, by this stage, get rewinding a bit after my South Pole trip and my Mawson expedition done the old way. I've become very friendly with Serena Shackleton's granddaughter Alexandra Shackleton, and she said, "Look, I think you're the right." you're the right guy to lead the team and assemble a team to do this thing once and for all. And I was very honored to be asked to do it. But of course it, it, uh, you know, it's a burden because of course everybody loves the, loves what Shackleton stood for, bringing everybody home, leaving no one behind, leading from the front, not asking other people to do stuff he wasn't prepared to do himself. You know, there's a lot to live up to. Uh, but I was honoured to be asked by her. So, yeah, it's been simmering in the background. But the actual catalyst was her saying, come on. I, I guess when Shackleton's granddaughter asks you to participate, there, there's no way to, to say, no, I'm not going to do that. So, Well, it was a rhetorical question. So she <laughs> said, will you? It meant, it meant you will. Um, you know, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman and a, and a, a now dear friend. And... Uh, you know, of course, she never got a chance to meet her grandfather. He died at the age of 47, uh, long before she was born. And uh, so I think without, you know, speaking out of turn, I think the fact that we did this expedition, it gave her a chance to get a little bit closer to who her grandfather was, never having met him. Now, they sailed out from South Georgia to attempt to get to the South Pole. They left on December 5th, 1914. And after... Um, when they landed back at, at um, when they when they landed at Elephant Island on April fifteenth, that was April fifteenth of two thousand sixteen. That was uh, four hundred ninety seven days between nineteen sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Between when they had dry land under their feet, you know, previously it was it was either water or ice. So four hundred ninety seven days in between having dry land under their feet, and of course this was during World War One. And so, you know, everybody knew the expedition was starting off, but there were no resources available when they didn't show up as expected. And so they were just left to fend for themselves. They were on their own. They were forgotten. I mean, Shackleton, because uh, because they actually left on the eve of the First World War from London. They were in the Thames with Shackleton and his 27 men, with the, the you know, the, all the expedition resources in the endurance and war breaks out. And he wrote to the head of the Admiralty, uh, who was Churchill at the time, and said, "Look, give me the word, and I'll I'll give over all the expedition resources to the war effort." And he got a one-word response saying, "Proceed." And so off he went. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, year and a half, pretty much expecting to die for much of that time, um, and they find themselves, you know, on Elephant Island, still very much in trouble because there's no one on Elephant Island. No one knew where they were. Not enough food to survive the winter that's approaching and like you say first world war well and truly almost two years in no one's going to come looking for them down to them yep that's it now you you in preparation for your for your uh reenactment recreation um 
what what kind of what kind of logistics what what kind of how did you prepare the logistics to do this thing properly were unbelievably complex um you know we had to rebuild the boat we had to learn how to sail it we had to learn traditional navigation we had to get all the clothing made we had to go through the diaries to work out the calories they had we had to you know do everything uh try and work out how we were going to make it through the mountains of south georgia with basically one carpenter's ads one length of rope and the nails through the soles of boots there at the time we did the trip there were 15 people living on south georgia at a place called gritviken which is on the far side of the mountains and they're not you know they're not the green berets or anything you know they are kind of the penguin biologists the diesel mechanic in a small base they're not coming for you there's no airstrip on south georgia the nearest place is the falkland islands you know if you get in trouble you really are in trouble um so we spent about four years training and planning and you know even getting into into um you know icy water in a in a place called the cold water immersion laboratory or laboratory in, in Southampton University in the UK just to see how long you could tread water wearing that clothing before you went under we did everything we could think of doing to prepare ourselves mentally and physically for the for the trip but then you've got to get the boat down there you've got to get down there independently you've got to make sure the boats made it in decent shape you've got to get towed to the start point by someone then you've got to do the thing, of course, and get out at the end, hopefully intact. So, look, there's a lot to it. Um, and then everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, and, yeah, it's challenging. I mean, I think, you know, key thing is really getting to the start point in good enough mental shape and physical shape to actually have a good go at doing it. Uh, that was the key thing for me. And it was something of a relief to push off from Elephant Island in a replica of the James Care. Having at least got to the start point, give ourselves a chance. Okay. So we're, we're at Elephant Island. What does Elephant Island look like? You've seen it firsthand. Describe the scene for us. Well, Elephant Island is, look, it's spectacular, but it's also a brutal place. I mean, it's basically a jagged island sticking up out of the Southern Ocean, jagged fang of rock with glaciers. And, and anything that's not a glacier snout is basically a pretty much a vertical rock face. You know, there's very little to kind of like about it in terms of wanting to spend time there spectacular to look at as it rises out of the southern ocean but it's a brutal inhospitable place okay and you said said things didn't go quite according to plan some things went wrong so you, you set off from elephant island and take us through the journey well in the lead up there were so many so many things there were problematic. Just to give one example, we had to get our boat put on another boat to take down to Antarctica on a ship that supplies bases in Antarctica, brings in scientists and takes out equipment and things like that. And, um, you know, it was all very carefully planned. And then the base that I'd spent a year and a half negotiating to get the boat dropped off at, the day my boat approached with ours piggybacking on the back of it, there was ice in the bay. And that base was no longer it wasn't possible to land there and yet the guys with the boat couldn't take the boat with my boat with them on the onward journey uh, nor could they abandon it in antarctica because you're just not allowed to just drop a boat off and walk away so i had to come up with an alternative 
plan. I had 24 hours to do that. And it'd take me a year and a half to navigate, to, to negotiate getting it to the base that I wanted it dropped off at and so on and so on and so on involved buying vodka and fresh fruit and things for a Polish base. And I've still got a great relationship with those guys in order to drop the boat at their base with just literally 24 hours notice. Um, and many other things before we even started, you know, the trip itself, you know, you've got big tabular icebergs in the way. We had two storms. You've got ice gathering on the deck. You've got the sails just unresponsive and heavy due to the ice clinging to them. You're traveling in darkness in big sea state. Tim, Tim, was it as miserable as I'm as I'm picturing it in my mind? It, it, you, there's no way you could be even be have any ounce of comfort out there. No, I mean you're not. You know, you're you're basically in a boat about the size, same size as a queen size double bed in terms of the living space for six men. So you're all seated. There's no lying down. And you're sitting on a combination of rocks and camera batteries because we had camera batteries to film what we were doing. But they're just powering fixed cameras, filming the inside of the boat. It was a tiny seasickness-inducing, unpleasant, cold, wet space, basically. Um, and sometimes relief could be found actually on the helm of the boat, whereas one person at a time up on deck because the atmosphere below deck was so um, bad, not between us, but, you know, air quality, wet, um, you know, unpleasant toilet in a bucket held by the other guys three feet away from everybody. Uh, and just moving round one when the next guy came off the helm, everybody shuffled round one and it was your turn. If you were at the end of the line, it was you back up again and, Back it up sounds you like you, you got to know everybody pretty well down there in probably more than you want. Yeah, wanted. you know, the, the, the secret to good expeditioning is you get to know people before you go. You don't want to get down there and find that you're, you know, having a conversation about how big the sea was and how intimidating it was with a guy who hadn't thought of it until then. So you, we'd all bared our souls before we went. So you have all the serious arguments and disagreements and frank discussions about what it's going to be like before you go so you don't hopefully get too many surprises when you get down there and if i can say so they were a fantastic group of guys and you were subsisting on congealed lard yeah and look our uh cook was baz barry gray he used to be a regimental sergeant major for royal marines regiment head of outdoor survival so very impressive outdoorsman but terrible cook and uh you know the food was bad to start off with, uh, but his preparation seemed to add another layer of kind of misery to it all. Um, Tim, metal camping some, mug some, full of a viscous stuff, not not good. I've got some news for you, Tim. There's there's not there's not a real good way to dress up congealed lard. I mean, you're starting with a pretty pretty poor product. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, uh, and it would start to solidify. You'd heat it up on the primer stove. You get it as hot as you could get it to a sort of liquid state at which point it's just basically oil and then as the temperature gets to it it, it starts to congeal and if you're not careful you'll end up with just a mug of fat that you know the shape of the mug basically which you'd have to chew so best to get it down while it's still warm 
And how many days on from, from Elephant Island to South Georgia Island on your trip? Well, it was only two weeks at sea, but I say only. Um, compared to my big polar sledging journeys, it's it's not long duration, but it's brutal. I mean, you know, every hour or every big wave you go down the front of, you know, the boat threatens to turn sideways. And if it turns more than a certain amount, you just get you just get rolled. If you go too quickly down the wave, the front digs in and you get pitch pole end over end. And if you go too slowly, the waves just come over the over the back of you. And this was threatening to happen all the time. So you're living in a kind of a um, real heightened state of concern, if I can say that. <laughs> How do you sleep in those conditions? Well, you sleep badly. And of course, we practice that too. I mean, you know, you're practicing uh, micro sleeps because the person on the helm is is only up there for an hour. That's all you can stand because you just lose sensation in the hands and feet very, very quickly. So you've lost all sensation normally within about 20 minutes of being up there and you just sort of guts it out until your hour is up. And then you bang on the hatch. The next person comes up. They grab the two ropes that we used to steer by. So we had ropes that went through kind of the rudder with a, with a hole in with a knot in the end of the rope. You pull left, pull right. No, we didn't have a, a tiller because Shackleton didn't have one. So you've really got to have a lot of strength to to move it. In storms, it took two people standing in the space about the size of, you know, uh, a school desk that a kid would sit at in the old days, you know, a little single-person school desk. You'd stand in that space, um, you know, shouting in one of those ears over the sound of the wind and the waves. And, you know, it was uh, not for everyone. Now, so, so you you come upon South Georgia, right? You land on the same side that Shackleton did. How how was describe the experience of of going across overland over uh, South Georgia? Was it just as harrowing as Shackleton's description? Well, look, it really was because you know uh, I th I think one of the most dangerous things about sailing, if I can say it, is when you come close to a solid object like land. You know, it's all very well being in big seas at sea, but when you've got the big seas next to land and those waves and currents are threatening to just sort of throw you onto the rocks, that was pretty nerve-wracking because we had to land where Shackleton did with the weather we got. He landed where he did because of the weather he had, so we had to force that landing, and that was very dicey. And then, of course, once we'd done that, we were at the same start point for the climb as he was. Then we had five days of the worst weather that South Georgia can throw at you. We had hurricane force, 85 knot winds, about 100 mile an hour winds for consistently for five days and nights. And that just destroyed everything. And when it finally cleared enough to begin the climb, three of my guys were out due to injury. Uh, you know, two of them had got frostbite and uh, trench foot. So toes were distended and swollen due to the cold, wet conditions. So those three weren't going anywhere. And then we rendezvoused with two climbers in modern gear who were going to film the crossing, and they decided the conditions were too extreme. So we had to evacuate those guys. And then me, uh, Baz, and Ed, um, me, Baz, and Paul, sorry, were the three that did the crossing. Me, Baz, and Ed were going to be the ones, three climbers, but Ed's feet were too bad. Um, this is a guy who summoned Everest three times. So... Um, we did it as a three. Uh, interestingly, the same three as Shackleton. It was him, the hard man, Tom Crean, and Frank Worsley, the navigator. We had 
me, Baz, the hard man, and Paul, the navigator. So we end up with the same three. Did he wear that as a badge of honor, being the hard man? Look, he did. Look, actually, Baz claims to be a man. He says a few words, but actually, once you get him started, he keeps he keeps talking. He's great company. That guy never panics. Um, and when the weather was bad, it was just me and him up in the mountains, and uh, we'd lost both our tents, and we were in this sort of emergency tent. And I said to him, how much longer do you reckon we can last? And he said, oh, a couple of weeks. And I thought, a couple of weeks. I was thinking more in terms of minutes. So I knew I was there with the right guy. You know, he wasn't going to stop. So of all of the wonderful things you've described on this trip, which was the least horrible? Do you, do you remember back on a moment you with, with a particular fondness? Uh, I think the first time we actually worked out where we were on the ocean using a sextant, because you've got to get an angle to the sun or a star. We only saw the sun twice in two weeks, so that made it really challenging. Day four was the first time we saw the sun. And the sun has got to be at the high point in the sky for your latitude or is no point seeing it. So it's got to be at the high point to make a calculation. So getting that and working out where we actually thought we were was just one of those moments. Because up to that point, you're just in a world of pain and you know, the ocean looks the same. And it gave us confidence we'd actually move somewhere. So we got the whiskey out at that point because I was the brand ambassador for the Shackleton whiskey, which we took. And we drank some of that. So if you're pulling a five pound singing. sledge behind you, no, no, whis no extra whiskey in the pack. But if you're on the boat, it's OK to have some Shackleton whiskey with you. Well, you know, the contract said you've got to drink it. So we were forced to. Uh, forced they to twisted your it. arm. <laughs> Just my arm. That whiskey has got a really interesting life because it's actually made from some of the whiskey that was found under Shackleton's hut on Antarctica. They found a case of this stuff, sampled it, copied it. And some of that was in the stuff that we we drank. I need to get myself a, uh, a bottle of that. That needs to be on my on my shelf. It's a good drop. It's available in the US. The Shackleton whiskey at school is great. Okay. And I have no commercial interest in it anymore. But I mean, I, 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 it is good. It's very good. So, Tim, what's the takeaway here? So I, I've read the book. I've marveled at it from afar. You, you've read the book. You know the story. You lived through a section of that, of that expedition. What, what do you take away from this? Oh, there are so many things you take away from it. I mean, for a start, if I could say that, you know, we don't claim to have done what he did. We didn't sink the ship, live on the pack ice for 10 months, uh, on the five months, live in the ship for 10 months, miss, on, miss out on the dream of crossing Antarctica. So, you know, we just did the last bit, you know, small boat journey and the climb. And that's tough enough, I can tell you. Um, take homes all relate really to the leadership that, that guy stood for. You know, you break the total challenge down into small pieces. You look at problems just as things to overcome. Look at them positively as kind of learning experiences. And the number one thing I think that he stood for is his um, ability to read people. You know, the fact that he knew that of his 27 men, they're all different. If you wanted to pull in the same direction to achieve the goal in their case of surviving, you've got to pitch the message slightly differently to each person. And that's such a relevant relevant message for the world we find ourselves in today i think called being emotionally intelligent yeah you know at work if the copier is down you know the whole department's freaking out right now, now you're out 
this is a guy that had to work with 27 different people, approach them 27 different ways over the course of 497 days, right, of not having dry land under their feet and manage the panic, manage the the emotions of that whole experience. Uh, that it's just phenomenal. It's hard to imagine. It's, it is really, you know, the thing that I find most amazing is the fact that he remained positive throughout, you know, and if you're a sort of corporate leader or something like that, and you say to people after there's been a catastrophic problem uh, in financial markets or something like that, if you just sort of pretend that the problem doesn't exist, it actually undermines people's confidence in you. They think, wow, this guy really doesn't have a good handle on situations. So it's difficult to tread that fine line between really understanding the full gravity of the situation you're in, but still remaining positive. That, that's the tough one. Being positive when you don't really grasp how bad things are, that's one thing. Being negative, that would be a natural state of mind to go to. But the fact that he remained relentlessly positive, but still maintained the respect of his team, who thought, you know, this guy knows how bad this is, but he's still got a plan and keeps adjusting that plan in accordance with all the problems that come their way. That to me is the is the thing that makes him such a legend. Amazing. Now you said they were they were videotaping this. They were documenting this. Is there is there a a documentary that we're able to to see on this, or how, how can we learn more about your experience? Well, we made a film called uh, Chasing Shackleton, which is on PBS and uh, Discovery Channel, and a book of the same name, Chasing Shackleton. Um, and then more recently, uh, in fact, only three weeks ago, I brought out a documentary called Shackleton Greatest Story of Survival, which premiered here in Australia. And it's actually had some good reviews, very good reviews. And I made an IMAX version of that too, a sort of shorter one for IMAX viewing, longer one with some of the leadership stuff. And I think the intention, I don't know what the distributors here are intending, but I'm sure they intended to kind of go go global. Um, but the existing one is called Chasing Shackleton. Fantastic. Some bits they get right. Some bits <laughs> you can't capture the um, all the difficulty of of life on the boat easily. Um, for a start, you don't have a point of reference because you've got a camera on a boat and the boat's rising and falling with the sea. You can't really see how big the sea is around you, but it was it was pretty intimidating when you're in it. I was going to say I can imagine, but I I really can't. It's it's unless you've been in that position, I I I have a feeling you're underestimating the the pain of that whole experience. Well, the waves are at kind of sixty feet, big ones from sort of you know peak of one to trough of the other, and the boat, the mast is only you know a little twenty foot uh, mast, um, and you're just down in this grey valley. Um, and then uh, suddenly you're up on top of the world again. Then you're back down in it. And as soon as you, as soon as you're down in one of those troughs between the waves, you've got no power. You know the sail is limp, um, and then you're just dead in the water. And then you've got the worry of the sea coming over you from behind. The only thing that kind of keeps you going is is, is movement. And as soon as the power goes, you're just completely at the mercy of whatever the sea state looks like and i can remember some very worrying times on the helm as a non-sailor who trained to be sort of a half decent sailor where you know you first thing you know about a wave is it just hits you from out of the darkness you know these things just come at you from out of the darkness 
yeah, it's. Uh, I still think about it. <laughs> I, I imagine you do. I mean, do you have nightmares about it? Do you have dreams where you are in that situation? I have to imagine you do. I do sometimes dream I'm back in the boat and, uh, you know, that things are just in the balance again. Um, yeah, there were some very, very close calls. That is a crucible experience, right? I mean, you're, you're in there, uh, in the thick of it and you're being shaped by these experiences. I mean, so intense. I think the, look, I think the outdoors generally is a great teacher. You know, there's no straight lines. It's not designed for us. We're just bit part players in this whole theater of the outdoors, you know, and you go there and you, you got to learn to be resilient. You've got to adapt to all the curveballs that come your way and just keep on adapting in the knowledge. You've got an outcome you want to try and achieve and, what you want to get done remains fixed, but how you get there's got to keep on, got to keep on changing. And that's such a good life lesson. And only nature really teaches that, I think. And you don't have to go and get in a keelless rowboat to find that. I think um, many of your listeners and viewers all sort of think, okay, it's just getting out there and taking the first step and take that's that right. whiskey with you. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Hey, what, what's uh, what's next on your adventure list, Tim? What's the next big project? Well, I've just uh, I've got a project called Twenty Five Zero, which involves climbing all the peaks at the equator that have a remnant glacier, and of course there are twenty five of those. But within quarter of a century, that ice will be gone due to climate change. So uh, I actually climbed the first one of them, Mount uh, Well Carsten's Pyramid, was the first one in Papua. Uh, on day one of the climate change talks in Paris, and I beamed in live from the summit of that peak. It's the only one in Asia at the equator that has a glacier left, and the, the ice there has only got six or seven years left. Uh, Jan Carstens, the Dutchman in the 16th century, spotted this white stuff in the interior of Papua New Guinea and said, Look, there must be ice in there. And everyone said, you know, You've got to be crazy. That's the equator. But sure enough, he was right. But not for much longer. That's going. That's going quickly. So I'm 16 out of 25 into that one. Nine left. How long did it take you to do this? Nine left. And I went to the Subantarctic Islands in December. Um, Australia's got some. New Zealand has some. South Africa has some. Obviously, South Georgia is the Brits, and they've got one, one or two, and they're yeah. wonderful places. Yeah. All right. Hey, Tim, you know where we are? Where you are? Northern, are. northern. Yeah. Yeah. Up in, up in, up in the northern part of California with some great snow. Is that right? For the moment? That, that's, uh, yes. If you're looking at my background there, but uh, actually where we are in the episode. The pro tip insight of the week. That's oh, right. right. Calf. It is there time for the pro tip from Tim Jarvis. What bit of outdoor adventure wisdom can you share with us to make our listeners' next next outdoor experience even better? I think, you know, if you're looking for a practical thing, break the total down into small pieces. Just worry about those. But the other thing is, you know, write down the reasons why you wanted to do this in the first place. Because if you're doing something that's challenging, sometimes you get out there and you can't remember those reasons. 
and it doesn't have to be impressing your dad or because you said you'd do it to the media if it's a big thing. Sometimes you you forget the bigger reasons why you wanted to do it. In in the misery of the Antarctic, you forget. And you've got to remind yourself of the kind of the enormity of this thing that you so write those things down. Write down things that motivate you when times get tough. And you can read them in your little notebook and helps you keep you positive. What if you're doing it because Shackleton's granddaughter asked you to? Oh, then that was fear. That was fear. You know, I just couldn't say no. But now I'll tell you what, in April 2016, I was asked if I'd speak at uh, Westminster Abbey in London, which is, you know, where all the royals get married and uh, just to celebrate 100 years since the James Caird trip. And I said yes. And I went in there and I was on after Princess Anne speaking from the pulpit. And it was 2,000 people, the choir, paparazzi, you know, you name it, people in military uniform. You know, it was just really taken seriously like the Brits often do in those situations. They do that very well, of course. But it just showed that the legend of Shackleton is very much alive and well. Do you have any stage fright, any imposter syndrome? Are you having, having to follow these? Uh, uh... They're two different things, right? I mean, stage fright, I don't get. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I know what I've achieved. It doesn't make you uh, big note yourself or be immodest. But I think if you can just have two parallel states, one, be modest, but be aware of what it is you've managed to achieve and just carry that in inside you imposter syndrome sure um there are there are days when i read something about shackleton or some of those early explorers and i think wow i don't think i'd stack up and then you remind yourself then that in fact you did do what you did um and it's in all of our natures not to regard ourselves as worthy of having achieved i think groucho mark said who want to be a member of a club that let me in you know you know, once you're in, it kind of demeans the value of that thing. Natural, right? To feel that way. Yep. Well said, Tim. Well said. And I love the concept of taking the 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 big problem and breaking down into smaller steps. So you can only take one one piece of that at a time. That's right. You know, and then periodically take a look. You know, take a step back and think: Are all the small increments still getting me there or am i still on course because the de danger then if you just go down into that tiny detail is that you don't take a step back and just see how you're tracking so that's right step back pull out the sextant get it get a bearing see if you're uh yeah in the right direction yeah that's it all right so there you have it that's it this episode is just about in the books hope our listeners enjoyed our time with tim want to thank him for joining us this week tim how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures well, I'm at Tim Jarvis AM. It means I'm good in the morning. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a little title that I've got, um, and I'm there on Instagram. And I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn because you know, look, I think uh, we can learn a lot in the corporate world, in the political world, from what Shackleton stood for. And I think uh, many of the people in that space are real game changers and can change the trajectory we're on, whether it's climate change or some other issues. So I kind of pretty active on, on LinkedIn and my website is timjarvis.org. Okay. Very Don't good. go to .com. He's an architect. He knows nothing <laughs> about suffering. I know nothing about architecture. So make sure you get it the right way around. 
he's probably glad that uh, Shackleton's granddaughter didn't call him and ask him to do what you did. So that would have been really interesting to see Harry or me to build the build the building that's going to house the boat. All right. Hey, remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakymirror at gmail.com. The Adventure Media Recommendation. All right, Tim. I'm also looking to you to share a recommendation for a book, a movie, documentary, something that's going to help our listeners stay connected to the outdoor uh, experience. We call this our Adventure Media Recommendation. What do you have for us? I'm going to go ahead and stipulate that, you know, already it should be uh, chasing Shackleton, but if it's not, if it's not, if it's something else besides chasing Shackleton, do you have any other recommendation for us? Oh, there are so many. Um, I don't know if I can say the book Unflinching, which is an old classic. Um, it was written by a boy who, between the wars, so this is in the 1920s, 1930s, a young man, he went up to, the wilds of Canada with his Canadian cousin just to see if they could uh, survive out there. And I won't say what happens, but it's very, very powerful. Unflinching, it's called. Unflinching. Um, I'm reading another one called Two Against the Ice by Einar Mickelson, who recounts this incredible uh, story of survival up in uh, Greenland in 1907. That, too, is a remarkable book. They both sound extreme, and somehow I'm not surprised that those are your recommendations. If you want, if you want outdoor sort of deep suffering but ultimately uplifting journeys, then go to those. I don't always read that stuff, by the way. But <laughs> okay, what have we not asked you? And usually, I ask the question. You know, here's a segment where you can share, you know, something that I didn't ask you, but I, I, I forgot to ask you something earlier. So I'm going to amend this a little bit. And of all your time in Antarctica, all these experiences in the extreme, what was the most unpleasant experience that you've had? Oh, look, there'd be many, I think getting lost, getting lost up on the high, plateau of antarctica when i was there with another guy in a blizzard he had the tent i knew i wouldn't survive if i didn't find him um and in the end i didn't find him but i didn't find him for only three or four hours and that was i was able to to stick it out for that long and when i finally emerged for the whiteout i could see the tent it was only 50 or 60 yards from where i was you know and i fell in there but i had bad frostbite um that was a very interesting headspace to be in just trying to control this rising panic in just a white world of pain where you couldn't see you couldn't see the tips of my skis you know and uh, i had to climb into my sled and just try and shelter and let the snow accumulate over the top like being inside of a snow globe it really was, you know, um, and, you know, what people don't realize, a lot of these Antarctic trips, you know, the thing that actually keeps you alive is not the clothing or the food necessarily. They're important, too, but it's moving. Moving generates the heat. So you've got to keep moving. If you're not in your tent, you've got to be moving. 
um, you know, sit still for more than five or 10 minutes in those temperatures and cold starts to eat into you. So you just got to keep on, keep on moving. And when you don't know where you're going, that's challenging. To say the least. Well, Tim, I want Maybe to that's a metaphor for life. This has been this has been a fantastic experience for me. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you about Shackleton and uh, uh, allowing me to to geek out on this. Uh, it's it's nice to talk to a a fellow uh, fan of of that story. Uh, that is a wrap from the John Freaky Mirror Studio. Any shout outs to friends and family, Tim? Oh, there are there are there are too many of them. My sons, Will and Jack. Keep on, keep on adventuring. Okay. And Baz, don't forget Baz. Uh, don't forget Baz. <laughs> but, but maybe think, rethink the cooking. <laughs> All right. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if it's 50 below in the middle of the night and you've got to pee. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.